Amen. Well, if you guys would stay standing for the reading of God's word in reverence and awe for his word. We're continuing our series, so if you'd open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter, and he says in verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we have instructed you, so that you may walk properly before the outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the Word of God. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Well, as I said, we're continuing on in this series um, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we're in chapter 4. And we're looking at, as, as he brilliantly started us last week, and Paul is addressing this church community of people in the city of Thessalonica, and he's telling them what a life that pleases God looks like. And this week we're going to talk about how God's Word directly impacts how we treat the people around us. But before we do, before we jump into the text, I want to go backwards. It's been said in order to understand the Scripture, sometimes you have to go backwards and then read forwards first. And that's what I want to do today. I want to go backwards and look at a moment in Jesus' life and ministry that was so mind-blowing and so revolutionary for his disciples that it caused a ripple effect and for the gospel to spread all over Rome. And the night before Jesus was crucified at the famous Last Supper, he predicts, after he predicts his death, Judas and his betrayal, Jesus looks at Judas, probably with a quiet tone, in John 13, 27. And he looks at Judas and he says, what you are going to do, do quickly. And then a few moments pass and Jesus takes the bread and dips it in the cup and gives it to his disciples, predicting his death. And he says, now the Son of Man will be glorified. Now that what was predicted by the prophet so long ago is now being set into motion, and I will be glorified. And then he says something, as I said earlier, that just shakes and rattles his disciples. He says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you. And you can imagine their ears perk up. Wait, a new commandment? I thought we've been given all the commandments. There's a new one, there's an 11th one, right? It's probably their thoughts. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I 
has loved you. You also love one another. And then he says in verse 35, By this all the people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now up until this moment, it was easy to distinguish who were Jesus' disciples. Why? Because they were always around Jesus. Everywhere he went in his life and ministry, these men were right by his side. So they're probably thinking, okay, everyone already knows we're your disciples, Jesus. What are you talking about? In other words, what Jesus is saying is love proves, love for each other proves you're my apprentice. Because when all is said and done and Jesus is no longer physically present with us and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, what is going to distinguish the real disciple is our love for each other. Amen? But I'm sitting there and as I'm studying and I'm, I'm getting really deep in this and I'm nerding out and I'm doing word studies and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, oops, sorry. Um, and I'm thinking, okay, what makes this so new? And if you go to 1 John, and here's where I'm convinced of. In that moment, John, for John, what Jesus is saying is so earth-shattering, so mind-blowing, that he writes, in, a, in, in I'm convinced, a commentary on this very moment of what Jesus is, is, is telling his disciples. And in 1 John 3.23, he says, reminding the church of Jesus' command, he says, and this is his commandment. Now, when he says that word commandment, he's not talking about multiple things, you know, one thing or the other, it's a singular commandment. And then he says that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus. Okay. And he says, and that you love one another. For John, this command to believe in Jesus and to love each other are inseparable. They're one and the same. So when Jesus says, by this, all the people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another, he meant love for each other confirms your confession. And it affirms that what you believe about Jesus is real. But it's not just new because it proves our confession of faith. No, it's, it's new because for the first time, what all of the world's history was leading up to, what's new is not to love, because we know in Leviticus uh, 19 verses 18, it says what? That you shall love your neighbor, right? As yourself. What's new is not to love, but it's the way that we love. Just as I have loved you, Jesus says, you also love one another. 
In other words, this way of loving is given to you and to me as an apprentice of Jesus because we have a new heart. We have a new, not natural ability, but a supernatural ability given by the empowerment of the Spirit who lives inside of you and me as apprentices of Jesus to love each other. It's more than a feelings and emotions kind of love. It's, it's not a go, okay, you're my disciples, now go get along kind of love. It's a self-emptying, self-sacrificial, cross-bearing kind of love. First John, going back to John again, he says a, a number of different things on this kind of love. Because again, he's just so mind-blowing by what Jesus is saying. And in 1 John, there's a few verses I just want to read over us today. And in 1 John 4, 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John three fourteen, We know that we have passed out of death into life, because we love the brothers. First John 3.10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Hardcore, right? Whoever does not practice the righteousness of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Chapter 4, verse 8, First John, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Lastly, 1 John 2, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, and whoever loves his brother abides in the light. John is saying, do you see this? The new era has come. It's begun. And what makes this a new commandment? is that the light of the world has entered into human history, bringing down the kingdom with him and the ways of the kingdom. And now it's not just up to you and me trying harder kind of love. But as we are in the light, we are given the ability to be light and to love each other. God is redeeming all things in the way he is telling the world about his mission in human history and his love is through his word and through his church. Amen? And this is where we meet up with Paul, the apostle, today. He's reminding the church that he planted, that he loves, that he's invested his energy into, that your love for each other will prove to the watching world around you that your faith is genuine. And in chapter 4, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul sent Timothy, we've been saying this all series, but Paul sent Timothy to this church community to check on them, to minister to them, and to bring a report back to the apostle. And so what we're reading today in chapter 4 is a response to what Timothy, the news that Timothy brings to Paul. And so now Paul is writing this to the church. And Timothy told Paul about their faithfulness, but he also brings up him up to speed on some of the issues and the things that are going on in the church. And as 
uh, he so brilliantly laid out yet, uh, last week. That there were some of those issues of sexual immorality, and, and people were hurt by this within the church. But Paul, in, in, in our section today, is reminding them that how we treat each other, how we love each other as the church, is a gospel presentation. And so, packed into these few scriptures, we're going to look at what it looks like to live our lives as members of the body of Christ, as his church, in light of the gospel. So if you're taking notes, here's what I'm hoping we walk away with. And if, if this isn't clear, then I didn't do my job today, all right? So here's the big idea. That how you respond to God's word will directly influence how well you love each other and the effectiveness of our witness in the world. How we respond to God's word will directly influence how we love each other and how faithful of a witness that we are in the world. And in our text today, I want to take out three points that I want to give to you ahead of time. Um, if you're a note taker like me, and so I'm always looking out for you guys. Um, so three points that I want to take out of the text. And the first one, the first one is this, that it takes a village that brother, brotherly loves in community. The next one is we got to find our sweet spot. We're going to serve and work in light of the gospel. And then lastly, love like everyone is watching. Love for each other is a gospel presentation. So Paul now in verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, that word brotherly love is, is it, it, it literally is, is Philadelphia kind of love. You have no need for me to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God or taught of God to love one another. It's going to take a village. Godly living takes a village. And church, if you want to grow more and more with, with God, you have to grow deeper and deeper with God's people. There are a few things that influence the outcome of our life more than who you do life with. And that said, you don't have to come to church as the best version of yourself. Come in broken and bruised with your problems. Bring your insecurities. The church is meant to be a hospital and a place where you and I can come and heal you're welcomed as you are. And as we do, Paul is saying, love one another. This kind of love, I love what uh, J.D. Greer, a pastor in North Carolina, says. He says, to love one another within the church takes more than just passing participation. To love one another as brothers and sisters requires a wholehearted commitment and persistence. Why? That's because it's hard. Amen? It's hard to love each other sometimes. We don't always agree on everything, do we? 
But I'm afraid as the church, capital C church, that we've become more known about what we disagree on than our love for each other. We're so quick to text, comment, or unfollow, but so slow to love. And listen, I, don't, I, I believe no one is ever out of the reach of God's grace. And after a year of, of slandering each other over politics, social issues, mask mandates, we need more. What we need more as the church, more than ever, is a time to repent and to strive to be known for our love for each other rather than what divides us. Amen? Church, imagine a church of Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, rich, and the poor. The most united people in the community. If we want to go deeper with God, we need to go deeper with each other. This is what the new humanity is going to look like. This is the new people that God is restoring, redeeming, and making new and is going to be when he brings down the kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth and Jesus reigns. And this is what it's going to look like is our love for the Savior and our love for each other. And not only do we need to go deeper with each other, but look at what Paul says back at the text. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. In other words, I know this is going on among you. For you yourselves have been taught by God, again, are taught of God, to love one another. See, how we respond, Paul says, to God's word will directly influence how you love other people. Paul said this because he, 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 he knew they know this. But in fact, that word again for love, as we said earlier, is Philadelphia. And what that word means literally is it's a mutual love around blood siblings. Now about you, but if you mess with my sister, I have a little sister, right? Two years younger than me. Oh, it's on like Donkey Kong. She drives me nuts, I but I love her, Right? I think she might be watching, actually, live stream. Shout out. But you mess with her. Oh, it's on, right? It's that kind of love. Paul is saying you're already a witness to the power and the love of Christ with how you treat each other, but keep doing this. Don't just celebrate past wins. Keep doing this. I know there was someone who caused others pain, Paul says. I know that you're not always going to agree on everything, but just keep, but keep loving each other. Keep remaining in the light because your love for each other will prove your union with Jesus. And in the, in, the, in the city of Thessalonica, this kind of love was so valued, was so wanted and desired and longed for among the, the city around, in, in, really among society, but they could never figure out how to do it. 
This, this Philadelphia kind of love was so longed for. And so what Paul is reminding them is, hey, everyone in the culture wants this kind of love, but no one has the supernatural ability that you have in your life by the, by the power and working of the Spirit to actually pull it off. This is the witness of the power of God in your life, church. But like everything in life, it's a process, right? It's a process of daily yielding to the Holy Spirit who works in and through you and me to illuminate God's Word. And as we lean more and more, as we yield to the Spirit's work in our lives, God turns our once half-hearted affections or tries to love him better or to love each other better into a, a deep-rooted, foundational kind of love that's rooted in Christ and his love for us, spilling out into the people around us. See, our capacity to love does not come by trying harder. It comes by yielding to God's Spirit. In other words, if the Spirit is the one who brings life to the teachings of Jesus in my life, then my ability to love you is fully dependent. It's fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. Because as Paul said in his other letter to the Corinthians, in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, right? There's freedom. And the more and more I give myself over to, that, to the Spirit, to the Holy Spirit, every day I begin to experience that freedom that God has designed for you and me to walk in with Him and with each other. And we begin to experience a freedom from needing to prove our points. A freedom to love without return. A freedom to love when it's inconvenient. Amen? Freedom to love the hard to love. A freedom from trying to impress others because we are securely accepted in Christ. A freedom from trying to gain from others because we have been abundantly satisfied in Christ. The freedom from trying to dominate others and, and make our point because we have been arrested by the grace and submission to Christ. Freedom to sacrifice for others because Christ has sacrificed for us. A freedom to serve others rather than ourselves because he first served us. See, church, it, it's, it's not about what comes out of you. It's about what's in you. And it's going to take a village. It's going to take a community. It's going to take us, VCC, doing life together in this kind of Philadelphia love to grow and to mature as apprentices of Jesus. And then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 10, he says, For that indeed is what you're doing. So again, he's like, hey, I know this is going on around you. But then he says to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. 
So he's saying, just as you are loving each other, that same love I heard, I got a report from Timothy, that that same love is spilling out into the other churches around you, those who are a little more needy and might need some financial backing or some resources or just to be ministered to. I heard you're doing that. Keep doing that. Why? Because again, within this culture, this kind of love was longed for. And the more and more that they do that, guess what happens? The more and more we become a faithful witness to the world and the power of the gospel in our lives. So keep pressing forward in love, Paul says. And then in verse 11, we need to find our sweet spot. He says, to aspire to live quietly... Now, that, that word quietly can also uh, mean Sabbath rest. And then he says, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you. See, we influence the world around us by our quiet and humble life. In other words, your rested, unhurried presence in the world is a faithful witness to the people around you. It's a demonstration of the power of the gospel. It's a display of the new trust that we have in Christ. Why? Because we live in a culture where it's popular not to back down on issues that mean a lot to us. But a lot of times when we do that, we stir up more trouble versus changing someone's outlook on life. We view our unwillingness and our culture to back down, to not to back down on our convictions as a sign of being bold. I'm not against convictions. But we see our, uh, our unwillingness to back down on these convictions as being bold, but that can also be a sign of foolishness, producing even more bigger problems. We let the anxieties of society become our anxieties, putting to death our unhurried presence and hurting our faithful witness. We all have convictions. It's a good thing. But it's our response to others that demonstrate the world, our trust in the Spirit's power in our lives. And that certainly there are times for hurry. Last year, a lot of you know my wife went to the hospital. Did I hurry? Yes, I drove way too fast on the freeway. Don't judge me. I was really scared. Uh, but I hurried. There, there's moments, there's times for hurry. But the problem comes when we live life at a pace, the same pace in everything that we do and say. And I think for so many of us, we live at this pace not just with work, but when it comes to cultural issues and everything else that's going around us because we have yet to experience the rest of living in light of the gospel. The most unhurried people are also the people that have, been, that have the most room in their lives to love like Christ. Because I'm not wrapped up in your anxiety. I care for you, so, so, I, so now I do have room to love you, but I'm not going to allow that to come and to, to mess with me. I'm going to have the freedom of Christ. It's an unhurried Sabbath kind of rest of being in his presence. And that word quiet is translated Sabbath, but it also can mean absence of words. You know, a few years ago, uh, we were living in Colorado. Shout out to Heath, wherever you are. 
We joked earlier that it gets a quarter for every shout out. Um, so there you go. One in the tank. Uh, we were living in Colorado at the time, and we were taking a break from ministry. We were just come out of a season of, quite honestly, some, some ministry hurt and pain. And the whole goal for us was to be with friends and family. I have family that lives there, and, um, and just be with God. And I got a text from a friend who said, hey, I, I thought you should know so-and-so said this about you in their last sermon, um, just so you know. And so, I don't know why I did this, but I listened to it. And I remember immediately my reaction was, okay, I'm going to post something passive-aggressive to prove my point, to justify my cause. I'm going to create a blog, five ways this isn't true about my life. I'm going to defend myself here and protect this person. But I remember I opened up Facebook and, okay, don't judge me. Some of you are on Facebook right now. But I opened up Facebook for some reason, and this quote by one of my heroes in the faith, Ray Ortland, pastor in Tennessee, or former pastor in Tennessee, he said this, when, not if, your reputation suffers an undeserved injury. And this is what changed my life. He, he says, your quiet integrity over time will say all that it needs to be said. And as I was standing there, and I, I did turn off Facebook, feeling broken, I said to God, if this is true, Spirit of God, would you give me this kind of quiet integrity and remind me like you did to your servant David that you were the one to fight my battles, avenge my cause, and that I don't have to come up with a better comeback or defend my case because you're my defender and my rest. And I think what we need to be reminded of today is that sometimes our quiet integrity will amplify the gospel's power in our lives louder than our comebacks. Sometimes we show more trust in God in our silence. Paul says, live quietly. Mind your own affairs, work with your hands. So it says to live quietly in a Sabbath kind of rest, sometimes in an absence of words. But then he says, and quite honestly, he says, mind your own business and get to work. Now, historically, we aren't actually 100% sure what Paul is, uh, the situation he's addressing here in the church and who Paul is speaking to. But we do know what Paul is speaking to uh, are people that have gotten so head deep into other people's issues or drama that it's actually stopping them from working and providing for themselves. They've become so obsessed with what's happening around them in the lives of other people. And this is not a kind of self-sacrificing, hey, I'm going to take the day off to come and grieve with you kind of obsession or love. It's their anxiousness becomes their anxieties, producing in them an idle lifestyle, a lifestyle that almost stands still. They've become so obsessed with something that causes them to stop caring for their families, 
distracts them from their jobs, and now they are relying on other people within the church to meet basic needs. And maybe for some of us, we're, some of us it's just we're watching too much TMZ and we're neglecting our jobs. But what Paul is saying is there is something in your life that is distracting you away from your responsibilities, talking to this church, to work and care for the people in your life. And if this is true, if this is happening, this is going to hurt your witness. And remember, Paul is not um, talking about people who have lost their jobs or anything like that. Remember, just earlier, he just commended the church for going out to the city and helping other churches who were maybe not as financially stable as they were. So this is not what Paul is talking about. But what he is saying is how you work and what you choose to spend your time on can increase or hurt your gospel witness in the world. So we need to find our sweet spot because our work matters. What we choose to spend our time on matters to God. And if our love for God and others, if, if, if they're not meant to be in two different departments, but rather it's one singular action, one singular commandment that God has given to us, a new commandment I've given to you to love God and to love others. It's one thing, it's one package. And if this is true, and I believe wholeheartedly that it is, then what we do with our time is a reflection and it's a fruit of where our love and affections are being directed. So at your job, excellence in your work is actually a form of generosity and love. Poor quality in your work is a form of stinginess or selfishness. Shoddy work is not just shoddy work, it's a failure to love. Success in business and life does not come from crushing the weak or getting mine doing as little as I can do to just get away with it. No, it's the opposite. It's the crucified life. It's helping the weak, going the extra mile, and putting others first. It's making love the guiding principle of our life. Amen? And to have love as the guiding principle of our lives means that our continual mindset is when I'm facing a situation or another decision is, how will this serve the people around me? Oh, I got this job opportunity. Instead of, oh man, it's going to be this raise. This is how I'm going to benefit from it. How is this going to benefit my family? Can I go there and be on mission like I am here? How can I serve others? I love what the ancient preacher Jonathan Edwards says. He says, a selfish man is not apt to discern the wants of others but rather to overlook them and can hardly be persuaded to, to see or feel them. He says, but a man of charitable spirit is apt to see the affections or the afflictions of others and to take notice of their aggravation and to be filled with the concern for them as he would be for himself if under difficulties. And then he says, he ends with this, he is ready also to help them and take delight in supplying their necessities and relieving their difficulties. What we choose to spend our time doing 
how we work, how we serve our church, how we serve our community. It's not first meant to benefit you and me, but it's meant to be a faithful witness to the watching world. And the hope is, too, that it benefits the church. I remember um, I was in an Army basic training still in South Carolina, and if you're a military guy, you know that it's hurry up and wait all the time, right? So we were raiding fake villages and qualifying, but mostly sitting down and doing nothing. So I'm like, well, I'm going to redeem the time. So I brought my Bible, I sat on my rucksack, and in between the hours of waiting for the, you know, 30 minutes of training that we're going to get, you know, between each period, I was just reading my Bible, and I, I remember doing that, and, and really day by day, and guy after guy after guy is like, bro, like, why, what is, why is this book so important to you? They knew what I was reading. And so I answered those questions, which led to a Bible study in our room, which led me to be able to invite them to church. And I'm not saying there's a bow on the story. I don't know where those guys are today. But when we find our sweet spot, God has you in. Paul is saying, do whatever you're good at. Wherever you are, whatever season of life God has you in, however you do it, serve each other, serve the world, and do it in the light of the gospel. Because as they see you serving, as they see you working and not getting wrapped up in smear campaigns or Facebook battles online, your life is going to be attractive to outsiders. And then Paul, in our last verse, verse 12, he says, reminding them again, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We need to love like everyone is watching. Because they are. Paul is describing two things that need to be true about my life and your life as the church. And number one is that our, our lives are marked by a high-profile love among us, which then will result in apprentices of Jesus taking a low and humble profile before one another. In other words, our love for each other is a launching pad for mission. And when I say mission, I'm not talking about a trip. I'm talking about a lifestyle. In all of our disagreements, that we might love each other and our love for each other sings a louder song than the noise that's going on around us. But our love for each other and for God might be the anthem the world hears from the church and no longer what we disagree on with each other. Number two, your life and your work is a platform for the gospel. Paul is saying when you're doing your job well, when you're providing for yourself, when you're not becoming so obsessed with other people's business, your view of your work and you view it as worship, not a burden, your life makes, again, a louder sound in the world of noise. 
It's a countercultural kind of life. And just as God has promised to restore all things, to set it all right again, as he told Abraham that he was going to bless his family so that the nations might be blessed, just as God sent Jesus into this broken planet to bring down the kingdom in its ways, um, just as Christ emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found as the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. A countercultural life is a crucified life. It isn't about putting up our defense mechanisms, but to make ourselves vulnerable by practicing good faith, trusting God, and living to bless others. And I think for so many, we have forgotten that the first thing the world is going to see is not how right we are, but how much we love each other and how we respond to each other. And I just wonder, what if we put the phones down, myself included, and started looking up again? ways to contribute to the flourishing of our church, whether it's through volunteering, calling someone, ways for the city to flourish. What if we wanted to see change and we did something about it rather than tweeting about it? To love like everyone is watching. To love, as Jesus said, to love like Christ has loved us. And when Jesus said these words to his disciples over 2,000 years ago, it wasn't a go imitate me or copy kind of love. And there are places for that, and we should. And Paul tells us to imitate Christ. But this isn't that moment. This isn't an imitate me kind of love because, but this kind of love is speaking to the whole world that the light has come. And what Jesus is saying is, don't copy the light. What he's saying is, go be in the light. Amen? Because First John 4, 1, 7, again, commentary on this, on what Jesus is saying. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. What if it's church? What if church we were known again less about what we were angry at each other for and more about our love for each other as people of the light? What if God's people in the world were known not as people, as those people that don't tweet and become the hands and the feet of Jesus? We showed up in our communities and we served. What if the anthem of VCC was a song of love, not reaction, of self-sacrifice rather than self-promotion? Because today, how we respond to God's word will directly influence how well we love each other and the effectiveness of our gospel witness in the world. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we are called to be people in the light and you have taken us 
not just from our bad things, but from death to life, from darkness to light. And so help us be people of the light. And as we do, the, the brighter we shine, as we spend more time with you, commune with you, and it spills out into our lives and to the, to the church and to the people around us and that the watching world would see, man, that love is different. There's no other way than the power of the gospel that those two people are sitting next to each other in a pew. Lord, for those things that we need to repent of from this past year, help us to repent. And I ask for myself included, would you not just in, not only increase my faith, but increase my love for you and my love for my church. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh, man. What?